Hello everyone, uh, my name is Lazarus Jackson and this is the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Uh, I am not pleased to be joined by Ben Gulker tonight. Ben Gulker uh, will not be joining us. The entire Gulker family is out of commission after uh, a bout of the Thanksgiving flu went around. Uh, I hope that they're all feeling better sometime after uh, after this podcast drops because uh, the Pistons were able to win tonight. I know that uh, that will at least make Ben feel a little bit better. Um, Pistons beat the San Antonio Spurs fairly soundly. Um, Nola Marcus Aldridge helped, uh, but Christian Wood had a career-high 28 points off the bench. Pistons made 15 threes. They held San Antonio to under 100 points. Uh, Great stuff all around. And that kind of caps a very odd week for this Pistons team, right? Like two blowout wins over Atlanta and San Antonio at home, sandwiched around uh, two close losses on the road and at home to the Charlotte Hornets, who now hold a nine-game winning streak over the Detroit Pistons. I don't quite know what to make of that. Dwayne Casey and Blake Griffin have never beaten the Hornets in a Detroit Pistons uniform. Like, that's how long it's been, which is just mind-blowing to think about so yeah we're weak weird week if you want to believe in this team's long-term prospects you can point to the two blood home wins over bad teams which is exactly what a team with the aspirations the pistons have should be doing but if you'd like to rebuild you can point to the two losses against the hornets where the pistons were paralyzed in crunch time i personally am not team rebuild just that's not what i've been about so after the Charlotte loss, the the last one, I, I have to specify. I went on a bit. I went on a bit of a Twitter spree about why I hoped the team would trade their 2020 first round pick for a player that could help them win games right now and make the playoffs this season. And generally, I've been of the mind that perpetually trying to win as many games as humanly possible is better than trying to rebuild for the Pistons. I got a lot of feedback. You know, a lot of good conversation happened in the in the bitterness surrounding that loss. And so tonight I wanted to try and explain myself out just as clearly as I could. Um, I've got a big, long script for you guys, like over 2000 words written. We'll see how long it takes to sound all this out. But yeah, let's this is this is what has just kind of been circulating in my mind in the uh in the rebuild versus tank debate as we've been going through it. So first things first, uh, the reason I am sup- I'm more comfortable than others trading the first round pick this year is that I don't love the top of this year's draft. Uh, to me, there are four guys at the top of the draft. There's Cole Anthony, there's James Wiseman, there's Anthony Edwards, and LaMelo Ball. Those are the four guys that I think you would, you would want uh, at the top of the draft. And then after that, the rest of the guys are kind of just guys. I haven't done my like super deep dive scouting uh, college basketball process yet. Hopefully, the Pistons force me to you know put that process off until you know March or April. But uh, at the same time, like just even looking at the college ball basketball landscape, just as casually as I've been able to, there haven't been a lot of na- other names that, that stand out. I mean, you've got a guy like Aniko Mannion, who's a name that I've heard thrown around. Like, I'm not surprised by that. You know, a white guy who's an athletic point guard. Like, I can see why he would intrigue a lot of people. 
You heard a little bit about R.J. Hampton before he went to Australia, but he's really struggled when he's been there. Uh, you hear about Tyrese Maxey. You hear about you hear about Killian Hayes. You hear about Cassius Stanley, and you know those guys are those those guys are solidly in the second or third tier of players. But the the four guys I mentioned earlier are at the top of the class. The the my issue with the top of the class is that those guys that I listed aren't as good as some of the other draft picks that have been available at the top of the other, at the top of past drafts. There, there's no Luca in this draft class. I mean, that's maybe a little bit unfair. We're we're rapidly learning that there's only one Luka Doncic, but to even go just like a step down under that, right? There, there's no Trey Young in this class. You know, Cole Anthony, a guy I had my eye on because he went to he's go he goes to UNC and I can watch a lot of his games if I so choose. You know, he's I think what I would consider the the safe the the classic number 1 overall pick. But he's currently shooting under 40% from the floor, and his true shooting percentage is hovering just over 50%. You know, LaMelo Ball, a guy who I think a lot of the younger generation are intimately familiar with because of, the, you know, the Facebook series, because he's a ball brother, because he's uh, he's playing, he's played professionally, he's played in the Drew League. Like, you, you've seen LaMelo for so long, since he's been like 14 years old, and you see him putting up triple doubles in Australia, and you're like, wow, this guy's this guy's killing it. But he's shooting under he's shooting twenty five percent from three, and his true shooting percentage is under fifty percent. You know, James Wiseman is really productive for um, when he's playing for a Memphis team that like absolutely needs that production. But he his projection, his pro- future projection, like what he projects to be in the NBA, is a defense first rim runner. So to me, that's like. Okay, so you if you get a top draft pick, you get Andre Drummond with better offensive habits. Like that sounds like a good player. Don't get me wrong, but like we already have current version Andre Drummond, and you don't have to wait two three years for for James Wiseman to get to that level. And then you know Anthony Edwards. I honestly he killed my Spartans, and I need to go uh, and watch a little bit more of him. But he reads to me like an inefficient chucker. He's he's got. Uh, I think he's played like six six or seven games this year, and he's got two games where he scored uh, over 30 points, and he's got two games where he scored under 10 points. To me, I, I value the consistency. That it, that kind of doesn't uh, appeal to me. And like, yeah, I know that all the all the guys I just listed, they're, they're kids. They're, you know, under 19. They will get better. Um, but, you know, none of these guys are stand out to me. None of these guys are making me go like, whoa, like Jaron Jackson did. Like like Luca did. Like you could watch Luca at like seventeen and be like, Oh my god, this guy's so good. Even even Trey Young. You know, Trey Young had a really hot start to the season and, and slowed down his second half of the year at, at Oklahoma, but the the passing vision like was always like readily apparent. The thing that made him special was like always readily apparent. Um so in addition to the lottery rules making it dif- more difficult for a team like the Pistons to get a top four pick. Even if you obtained said top four pick, I am not absolutely convinced that in this draft, that top four pick would land you a a capital S star, which is what you are trying to get at the top of the draft. You know, second, this team already has a lot of kids. (laughs) I tweeted this. they, They got a lot of kids. They got Luke Kennard. You got Bruce Brown. You got Christian Wood. Great game tonight, Christian Wood. You got Jordan Bone, you got Sekou Dumbuya, you got Sfima Kailuk, 
you know, I'm not even going to mention like Kyrie Thomas and Lewis King. Like Kyrie's been hurt, so you don't really know what he's got, and you, you'd like to keep him in the team's plans, but you're just not sure about him at this time in his career. And you know, Lewis King is a guy who's playing really well in the G League, but he was so bad when I looked at him uh, before the draft that I need to see him do it for essentially an entire G League system before I, I really account for him in the Pistons' long-term plans. And so that's you know that's six guys. I'm not even counting Thonmaker. I'm not going to say Thonmaker's name. Thonmaker doesn't count for this. Is that six guys that are under 25 that are either in the rotation or getting like really good development work in Grand Rapids? Um, you know, I said this on Twitter. Uh, the team you know doesn't need six guys is a lot. Six guys is enough. You don't you don't need more guys than that. You know, two years ago when this team had like Stanley Johnson, Henry Ellenson. Luke Kennard, and then your two ways were like Reggie Hearn and Kay Felder, like two guys who like probably aren't going to make it into the league. Just uh, for Hearn, it was based on age, and for Felder's, based on his size. Like, yeah, I would have agreed with you that this team needed a talent and youth infusion. But, you know, over the last couple of drafts, we've obtained more of that. And so what you're looking for now are like younger difference makers which like brings me back to point number one where I don't I don't see those guys at, at the top of the draft you know as frustrating as the Pistons have been to watch at times you know Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin are still all, all-star level players and you'd be lucky if a guy you took at the top of this draft was as good as either of those guys three four years from now and you know ideally you want a guy who can be better than both of those guys to help helm to help like lead your rebuild, right? You know, third, the the type of player I'm trying to trade for the first round pick is a guy who would be ideally helpful now and helpful in the future. You know, I'm not trying to trade a first to bring in like Bobby Portis for 60 games or Danilo Gallinari for 60 games or even DeMar DeRozan who uh, definitely played tonight like he was auditioning to be a part of the Pistons. He shot like, I think he shot three threes and he shot five or six in the 20 prior games to tonight. And so DeMar was definitely playing like a guy who wanted to showcase what he could do to a team that might be interested in trading for him. But like as much as, uh, as, much as I do agree that DeMar DeRozan raises your floor, I would not trade the, the first round pick for him. You know, the type of guy I'm trying to trade the first round pick for is a two-way wing, which is something that I've been, like, screaming about forever. But this team needs a a two-way wing in his early to mid-20s who's under team control for multiple years. That's probably, like, a bigger contract, but that's fine because Detroit doesn't really use cap space to sign, like, max free agents in the same way that other teams do. And so... You know, a surplus of cap space doesn't really do as much for Detroit as it does for other teams. So when I was asked on Twitter about the guys I was interested in trading for, I came up with some names. I came up with additional names, just like thinking about this, pondering this, writing down what I was going to say in this podcast. And so think like Robert Covington. Like I know Robert Covington has been like marked for trade to the Warriors ever since D'Angelo Russell uh, signed his contract. But like just if... In an ideal world, right? Like, I would definitely trade a first-round pick to get Robert Covington. I would trade a first-round pick to get Otto Porter. 
I would trade a first round pick to get Bogdan Bogdanovich. That's the younger one. Um, the one in Sacramento who I'm pretty sure if you traded for him at this point, you would get his restricted free agency rights. And so you'd be able to match any contract that teams would be willing to offer to him. And so like that is your version of like long-term team control. You know, Drew Holiday isn't a wing, but he can guard wings and he's got a three minus one. He's got a three year deal with a player option on the final year. That's a, that's enough team control. And he makes, I think like 28 million or so in that final year. And so I don't think he'll, I don't think he's turning that final year down. And so like, that is another guy who I think you, you'd have both have for a while and can play really well on both ends of the court. You know, Brandon Ingram, if the uh, same deal as Bogdanovich, where you get his restricted free agency rights. And that's if the Pelicans, you know, aren't interested in keeping him, which by all accounts they are because he's developed into a, like an amazing score this past season. Um, you know, Boston just signed Jalen Brown to that extension. But if they, you know, look around and say like, oh, my God, like we we, we gave up way too much money for Jalen Brown. Like I would absolutely give up a first round pick for that guy. Um, TJ Warren isn't quite good enough defensively, um, but he's he's kind of the borderline of like where I'd be willing to give up a first round pick. So, yeah, the, the point I'm trying to make by listing those names is that I'm not trying to give the pick away. I'm not trying to just hand another team a first round pick. I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to obtain something that costs a first round pick to get. Uh, I can see how the the functional difference between those two things might be like very minute and uh, very small. But uh, to me, it's like, okay, the difference, the difference between uh, trading a first round pick for uh, a Robert Covington and then trading a first round pick for our, for a DeMar DeRozan is really vast because, you know, one of those guys actually contributes to winning basketball. One of those guys can fit in seamlessly between uh, alongside Blake and Dre one of those guys is uh, under team control beyond this year. And the other one of those guys has a good relationship with your coach and is a name, right? Like that's what DeRozan kind of brings at this point. He brings his name. And so that doesn't necessarily lead itself to, to playing winning basketball. Like adding DeMar DeRozan doesn't necessarily like lead itself towards winning more games. No, I'm trying to win and I'm trying to win. I'm trying to win. I don't want to win at all costs. I'm not going to look at like Reggie Jackson's injury and Derek Rose's propensity to get injured and trade a first round pick for like half a season of DJ Augustin or something. Right. I'm not again, I'm not trying to give this pick away. I'm trying to get something that I think will cost a first round pick. And then, you know, fourth said something a, a little controversial people made people really did not like this uh, I said that you know I don't think this team is winning a championship in the next 20 years and so if your objective and desire for this Pistons team is to like do everything in your power to win a championship um, n- like that doesn't matter none of it none of it matters per se maybe that's a little bit harsh 20 years is a really long time but it's been 15 years since the last Pistons championship, and it could easily be uh, another 10 or 15 years before you see the next one. That doesn't seem uh, crazy to me. You know, only one team can win a championship each, each season. Basketball, because of the format of the playoffs, you get multiple seven-game series across, like, you know, two months, basically. Um, 
the NBA does an excellent job of determining who the quote-unquote best team is and uh, awarding that team the championship. If you beat a team, you know, four times out of seven, it's less likely that it's a quote-unquote fluke, and it's more likely that you're just a better team. And, you know, because of the nature of basketball itself, each team can only have five players on the court at any one time. There's relatively frequent scoring. There's relatively infrequent substitutions. There's no, like, line changes like hockey, or there's no, like, taking out your running back or defensive lineman for a couple plays to give them to get them a breather and then putting them back in the game. Uh, and so because of that, the best teams are generally led by the best players. And, you know, from a numerical perspective, there can only be a handful of best players. There can only be five top five players. Like that's how that works. And so the way that the NBA has worked so far is that if you don't have one of those five players, if you don't have a top five player, it is unlikely that you will be able to win at the highest level in the postseason. You know, that's why teams start and rebuild because that's why teams tank because they're pursuing players who they believe that they could develop and shepherd into top five players. You know, something I think is a little bit underplayed is that you can do everything correctly with regards to uh, selection and development and still not succeed in that regard. You can still uh, do everything right and, and not get a top five player. Um, you know, Paul George is a great example. This is an all NBA type player, um, MVP candidate a couple of years ago. And I think he's, he's roughly like maximized what he'll be able to accomplish, like on a basketball court. I think you've gotten, you know, Paul, you've gotten, you know, a 90th percentile outcome for what Paul George like could have become in his career. But anytime he's in a playoff series against LeBron James, he's not going to be the best player on the floor like just flat out and so if you draft paul george and hypothetically speaking he takes you a couple he takes you to a couple of eastern conference finals and loses to lebron james like is that so bad it's like not not for me not in my mind like paul george is a really good player i'd be happy with that result but if your sole objective is to win a championship that's a failure you failed and you know that that dichotomy, that, you know, that contrast has never really sat right with me. From an entertainment perspective, my personal view is that it's more fun to, you know, watch and analyze and talk about a team that's winning versus a team that isn't. I think that's pretty universal. I think everybody likes to win. I could be wrong about that. So, you know, when this current Pistons front office stated that their objective was to build a winning culture, to build a team that consistently made the playoffs, not necessarily like win a championship, but a team that could consistently win games in the regular season. Like, I agreed with that. that. That agreed with me. You know, we have a championship pedigree in Detroit, but because of where the team has been for the last decade, like you got to start at the level of just being a good team first you know a good example of what that could look like to me is the indiana pacers which i've been alluding to for three minutes if you haven't been listening um the indiana pacers have made the playoffs 24 out of the last 30 years they've been to the eastern conference finals multiple times in that span they've gone through a lot of great players during that time they went from from danny granger to paul george to victor oladipo essentially like that's the that's the the hierarchy and you know with oladipo 
with Sabonis, with Turner, with Brogdon, with with those guys, they look to be set up quite nicely for the next three to five years on like on top of all of that. And so, you know, I think trying to build a, a winning mentality and a winning mindset and a winning organization, but not a championship mentality and mindset and organization, I think that's a worthy goal. But are the Pistons doing that right now? No, 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 they're not. And, you know, not enough people have said this, but like that's the that's the best critique you can make of this team. Um, the Pistons. Uh, oh, sorry. I wanted to shout out Steve Henson, the Detroit bad boy. So I think he's been like he has been the guy who's been on top of this critique the most. Is that the Pistons aimed low. They aimed for a winning team and not a but not a like championship one. And, and they missed low. Like currently this team is not a winning team. You know, a new front office, a new head coach turned this team from a 39-win team to a 41-win team. And, you know, they've done at uh, this current offseason, they've taken that 41-win team and made it worse. This team is less likely to win 41 games. And so that represents a, a failure on someone's part. You know, maybe that's the players. Maybe that's the coaches. Maybe that's the front office. In all likelihood, it's a combination and a mixture of the three. But that does mean the front office and their stated goal of building a you know a consistently winning team shares some of the blame with regards to how the seasons come out. And so now that the team is failing, now that they aren't succeeding and they are hitting that stated goal, you have to wonder, as you know, Sean Corp and Duncan Smith and others have done out loud and in private, if you begin a rebuild, like should you do it with this front office? Should you do it with the front office that's already shown themselves like unable to accomplish their goals? If you begin a rebuild, should you do it with the front office that aimed low and missed low? You know, how much if they aim lower than what they're currently aiming at, like how much lower is it possible for them to miss? That's kind of scary. You know, I was listening to Sam Vecini's Game Theory podcast that he did with Ricky O'Donnell, who is a, a Bulls fan and a uh, NBA editor at uh, SB Nation. The not not just the Chicago Bulls uh, SB Nation site, like the, the main SB Nation like NBA site. And so what Ricky was saying was like, hey, this current front office of John Paxson and Gar Foreman, who's been in place a really long time, and their handpicked head coach and Jim Boylan uh, have so thoroughly ruined this team's development that despite the fact that the Bulls have drafted relatively well over the last three years, they drafted, you know, Laurie Markkinen, Wendell Carter Jr., and, and Kobe White, you know, the time for another rebuild is like quickly upon them because you know none of those guys are developing at the rate that they're comfortable with the team is is losing games and horribly coached uh ricky was saying you know the plan obviously was to to build up those guys and then be you know have an attractive team in time for free agency of 2021 and it by all accounts like that won't happen because you know wendell carter jr's development has stunted he hasn't grown into the uh, defensive anchor and, you know, offensive, you know, DHO hub ability with the ability to stretch the floor that the, that, you know, I thought he could be coming out of college because of the coaching, 
you know, Larry Markkinen has never developed into like a 40% three-point shooter. I think he's averaging 36% from three on his career. Um, and he looks to be, he looks like he's regressed this year, uh, both as a guy who can operate with the ball in his hands and, and defensively. Kobe White, it's really early to say like that uh, Kobe White has, uh, like whether or not Kobe White's growth has been stunted by Jim Boylan, but um, since he's done the same for everyone else on the roster, it makes a lot of sense that uh, he would be doing the same for Kobe. And, and so that, that is what terrifies me as a Pistons fan that you, you, not only do you get three top 10 picks, you use those three top 10 picks on players that, you know, have a bright future and then you get nothing to show for it. You decide to tear it down again because you're not going to build a championship team out of that. Like that, that just like doesn't appeal to me. A situation where you're you're never building. You're only you're continuously like destroying and creating, destroying and creating. You're continuously deconstructing a team because you know you've won some titles in the past, and you your fans deserve a championship level team. And like, damn it, you're gonna give it to them. And the only way we get back to this, that level of giving it uh, a championship team to the fans is by being really bad. And it's like that just that doesn't. It doesn't sit right with me. So, you know, would I trust the the front office that um, has put the Pistons in this current position to make the moves uh, that would pull them out of this position? Uh, and so that's that's the logical like response to that, right? Like, okay, you don't trust you don't necessarily trust the front office to rebuild. Like, why would you necessarily trust the front office to to you know pursue their stated goal? of building a consistent team. And, uh, you know, I think they've done an okay job so far of building a, a decent uh, team. You know, the trades they've done so far, and as far as, like, the John Lewis trade and the Reggie Bullock trade, um, lead me to believe they have, like, a decent evaluation of, like, how those pieces would fit, uh, how the pieces they acquired would fit, like, going into a new team. Um, obviously, they, they said they, like, desperately needed a wing player and, you know, John Luer was an expiring deal, and they made it. They turned that into Tony Snell in a first-round pick. That's a good trade. You know, Reggie Bullock um, was a great fit on this team, but uh, you know, they turned him into uh, Svi Mikhailuk, a guy who hopefully can accomplish a lot of the same things Reggie was able to accomplish offensively, given time, and another second-round pick. Like those are both those are both pretty good trades, give or not, give or take. And so, and, you know, additionally, the front office has constructed a team that makes a lot of sense on paper. Um, And, you know, that hasn't translated to the court for very obvious reasons because of because of injuries, because of the, you know, relative youth of half the roster, which, you know, I talked about 10 minutes ago. Um, If they're trying to be good and missing, I still trust that uh, in pursuit of trying to be good. Like they will eventually hit that mark. They will eventually hit the the good mark. That's because you know trying to be good is easier than trying to build a champion, and it's um, perhaps a little bit more difficult than rebuilding. But you need to rebuild correctly, and so I guess it's it's more difficult than build rebuilding correctly. And so because I believe uh, building a consistently winning team is a is an easier path, I have more faith that the front office can can hit that path. You know, if they're 
focusing on player development and they're focusing on drafting and they do that instead of winning games and they and they miss at that again like that's that's way worse to me and so i believe in the is how do i put this i believe in the incentive structure more than uh i trust the individuals it's supposed to incentivize i believe that um it's it's easier to build a, a middling team than it is to either rebuild like or build a championship team and you know I am willing to be wrong about this. If you don't win a lot of games this year and don't trade the draft pick for somebody that would have helped you win a lot of those games, those games, and then you you make a good selection with that pick, you know, that's another that's another kid to add to the pile. Uh, in time, like Seku, Luke, Bruce, and whoever you draft this year, like that's a nice little inexpensive core for the next couple of years. You know, Luke. Uh, because Luke was drafted the earliest, he's going to be contract extension eligible the soonest. But, you know, at this time, I don't think uh, Luke is going to get like wildly overpaid in free agency or anything like that. And so like, I think that's, you could definitely put together a, another middling core around those guys. You know, I like, I like all those guys. Um, you won't win like 50 games with those guys. Um, but, you know, there's a chance Seku's 18. Maybe he pops and maybe he becomes a guy who could lead you to 50 wins. You know, maybe I've misevaluated some of these guys at the top of the draft and they pop and they lead you to 50 games. Like that's, that's always possible. Other things that are also totally possible. uh, It's totally possible that Andre Drummond is just like a Rudy Gay and Toronto esque cloud over this franchise. And that like letting him go and turning things over to the kids plus Blake or the kids minus Blake works out better than I think. I mean, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to me that if you having talented players is better than not having talented players, but I can definitely see a situation in which both like the, the marriage between Andre Drummond and the Detroit Pistons has so thoroughly run its course that it, it could entirely be better for both parties to just split ways at this point. I don't believe that but I can definitely see how it's a possibility. It's not like I don't see how a rebuild could work. I just think it's more likely that uh, if you rebuild with the current kids you've got in place, it's very likely that you end up in the same place you are now. You end up with a team who's, you know, fighting to be in the playoffs, not, not consistently like solidly, solidly in the playoffs, like fighting to be in the playoffs. And if you, and if you don't rebuild, you don't have those two extra seasons of like sub 30 or 30 wins to get there. And it doesn't cost you the fans who won't pay attention during the rebuild. Like that's not to say that you'll have like so many interested fans right now. It's not to say like uh, little Caesars is full right now. Like I, I see the seats like do not worry, but like, you know, you lose uh, some number of, of casual fans uh, during any rebuild because casual fans want to see their team win games. Like let's be perfectly honest. If you are the kind of fan who's listening to this podcast and the kind of fan who's like engaging a lot on Twitter and the kind of fan who um, is like, is already like super invested in this team. Like you're, you're more of a diehard. You're more of a fan who's more likely to try and go to a game during a rebuild. You're, you're more of a fan who even knows that like a rebuild is the 
correct thing to do. If I like had to explain to an NBA fan that like, hey, no, like losing games is good because losing game games gets you better players. Like that incentive structure like does not make sense, and you'd have to explain it to them. And casual fans like don't really want that. They just want to have a good time and see their team win. A rebuild only provides one of those things. Um, people don't come to the arena. They pay for parking. They pay for tickets. They pay for food and they pay for drinks. They don't come and do that stuff just to watch their team lose. You know, look how bad the the Tigers attendance fell this season. Like the Tigers, I remember in at the height of their powers, the Tigers were like the the closest I've ever seen to another team. Like shaking off the the yoke of the Detroit Lions as the most popular team in Detroit. Like the Tigers, everybody loved the Tigers, and this year nobody was at their games. Nobody, and that's a look that ownership, you know, of of the Tigers, and this look that ownership of the Pistons like they don't want that. I guess we've gotten this far. We should talk about the owner, Tom Gores. Tom Gores is, you know, the the one person who's ultimately responsible for everything that occurs with this team. But, you know, being the owner of the team, being the governor of the team, if you want to use the parlance of that we that we got to use now, because owner owner does sound weird. I'll give him that. But uh, governor also sounds kind of weird. Uh, but if he's the, the governor of the team, he's the one person who also has nobody to hold them accountable for their actions. Right. That you can't. No one can fire the owner. The owner has to quit, essentially. You know, Gores has said he doesn't really believe in tanking, which very well could be true. Ted Leonsis, the owner of the Washington Wizards, he said that exact same thing last year. And look where the Washington Wizards are now, right? You know, a lot of the blame for where this team has currently ended up does lie at the feet of Tom Gores. But I don't think Tom Gores is a quote-unquote bad owner owner let me let me explain so he's done everything that you would want him to do off of the basketball court he's moved the Detroit Pistons back to Detroit something I will remain eternally grateful for even as someone who does not live in the state the Detroit Pistons belong in Detroit um he did that after upgrading the palace he spent you know x amount of his own money to upgrade the palace and then move the team out of the palace. Uh, facilitated uh, bringing the new practice facility downtown. By all accounts, the new practice facility is really nice. That's the kind of amenity that does help you out in uh, your free agent pursuits. Um, he's been willing to spend you know up to the luxury tax, but not beyond it. And I, by by Dwayne Casey's admission, by Ed Stefanski's admission, by Stan Van Gundy's admission, if uh, he was ever presented with something that you know, led him to believe that the, a move would, would make the team a championship contending team. Like he, it sounds like he would be willing to pay the luxury tax for that, which is more than you can say for some ownership groups. You know, I'm staring really hard at the Milwaukee Bucks ownership group right now. Even, even something as, uh, not necessarily small, but even something as uh, detailed as, you know, moving the G league team to Detroit in order to be closer to the big club, you know, like, I'm sorry about all the fans. I feel like I've pissed off the fans on the northern side of the state by saying, you know, the Pistons are in Detroit, no longer in the Palace. Uh, I feel like I'm, I don't want to you know, piss off the fans on the western side of the state by saying, like, hey, like you have to lose your your fun and interesting G League team. That's like your only like tenuous connection to the to the big club. But I do think, from an organizational perspective, it's better to have uh, your young player development squad 
like within like shouting distance of your uh, of your pro development uh, playing team. You know, he's done all this. He's spent all this money, despite the fact that we know the Detroit Pistons don't exactly print money. I remember I have written multiple stories for Detroit Bad Boys about how unprofitable the the team is. And so, like, he he does not have to do that. It's a business investment for him, obviously, but it's it's one that has not been profitable for him so far, but one that he's still willing to invest in. On the court, he's been willing to shell out the money for Stan Van Gundy. Stan was making, I think, one of the, he was one of the higher paid coaches in the NBA. Been willing to shell out the money for Dwayne Casey. Same deal. Uh, he was willing to expand the scouting department per SVG's request. I remember uh, reading a big story in SI about how SVG had fleshed out the, the scouting department to, to one of like the NBA's biggest. Um, he's been willing to shell out the money to you know support Ed Stefanski's non-traditional front office with three assistant GMs who all handle different different aspects of basketball. Like he's he's willing to experiment. Um, he wants to win. Like he very clearly like wants to win. He wants to bring winning basketball to Detroit, but he he doesn't really know how, and that's totally fair to him. He's not a basketball guy, and but the other thing is that he hasn't exactly hired people who have brought winning basketball uh, to their places in the past. You know, uh, Stan Van Gundy did go to the finals, but um, he that was you know with a and that was with a traditional center, and that was I think part of the appeal of Stan Van Gundy, but he was you know, perhaps foolish enough to give Stan Van Gundy, like, you know, control of the front office as well. And that was probably the thing that undermined Stan Van Gundy's uh, regime the hardest. Um, he hired Ed Stefanski at, well, he was, he was basically like handed Ed Stefanski as like a consultant. And then Ed, you know, worked his way into being the person that uh, Tom Gores wanted to look for, which is, which is odd. We should, we should point out that that's odd every time that Ed Stefanski's name comes up. But Ed Stefanski is not exactly like uh, previously built ch- a championship contender. You know, Ed, you know, went out and hired Dwayne Casey, and Dwayne Casey like has been part of a championship team. He was uh, the essentially like the, the defensive coach for that uh, 2011 Dallas Mavericks team, um, and you know, Dwayne Casey, you know, previously won Coach of the Year, but the the reason he fell out of favor in Toronto was because like they need they believed they needed a different coach like honestly they needed different players as well and you know there's part of Dwayne Casey that probably thinks that like if he was coaching uh, Kawhi Leonard like of course they would have also won a title like and you know that also makes sense to me but at the same time like I get it and all that is to say like I could see Tom Gore's being a much worse owner than he than he currently is I could see him being like meaningfully more cheap like that makes a lot of sense there are a couple of ownership groups who run uh you know smaller to mid make to mid market teams who are uh less likely to spend money on stuff like a brand new arena or uh moving or a brand new practice facility you know he could be uh he could be the type of owner who is convinced that he knows basketball really well um and you know does makes personnel decisions accordingly uh, there are a couple of those in the NBA, and you know that that tends to not go well. I can think of one example in which a, a owner uh, insisted a team draft a player, uh, draft a player uh, from his alma mater from the area, 
And while that pick, I think, will work out for them, yeah, it was clearly not the correct one. Yes, I'm talking about Robert, Robert Sarver. And so I'm saying that you know Tom Gore is, is much like the team he's created. Uh, he's exactly where his team is. He's, he's in the middle as, as an owner. Um, could be better. Could be worse. Anyway, whew, that was a lot of talking. After all that, uh, the Pistons will play Tuesday against Cleveland, a back-to-back uh, Wednesday against Milwaukee, and Friday against Indiana. That's three games against the uh, Central Division. That's kind of cool. Um, given the way they played today and given the fact that I think slowly but surely, I think this team is actually improving, I would uh, I would expect them to win at least one of those games uh, next week. Uh, Milwaukee is obviously going to be tough. I believe Milwaukee is on an 11-game winning streak. And so, like, you're you're not going to beat Milwaukee. That's fine. But you can definitely win one of the other games this week. And uh, that will help you take care of business. You know, uh, this was this was an interesting podcast. Uh, I spent a big chunk of today afternoon kind of writing down and explaining myself. And, you know, I'd really love to hear your feedback on this. I'd really love to hear uh, what you guys have to say in, in response to my thoughts. Because, like, that was, that was what generated and that was what honed a lot of my decision making and my thought process, like going into what I was going to say for this episode, you know, going back and forth with people in the comments, going back and forth with people on Twitter, you know, at last chance at L A Z C H A N C E. It is one of those things that like really, uh, the debate, it really does like make me feel, uh, like I'm gaining more perspective and I'm, I'm learning something new when it comes to the game of basketball. And so please, you know, comment on the podcast, on the podcast post, um, hit me up on Twitter. You know, hit Ben up on Twitter. I'm sure Ben will be feeling better by next week, and we will return to your uh, regularly scheduled, less philosophical, less NPR voice, Laz, next week. Uh, until then, uh, talk to you guys later.